Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Today we're bringing you Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 26, Treated as Runaways. Today we are unfortunately going to bring you a story that has broke uh, in our city. Um, when we first wrote this episode out, she was missing. Unfortunately, now they have found, they have found her. Um, and that is the case of... Angela Leanne Mitchell. She went missing on May the 5th, 19, or 2022. She was found on May 11th, 2022. Um, she was found at a location here in Texas City, and she was unfortunately found in the trunk of her car. Um, the mom did track down her phone to that location. At the time, she did not believe that her daughter was in the car but since then we have found that that has been true so i think to give you a little background on uh angela she is or was uh 26 years old mother of four i'm sorry 24 years old mother of four uh she had kids ranging in age from age nine to seven months two boys and two girls um lived in the dickinson area with some friends and um went missing as we said earlier sometime around the evening of the fifth and then so there were searches um a lot of questions on facebook about trying to you know get out there and talk to neighbors and see if anybody had seen anything and like morgan said earlier the car was tracked down in texas city off of fourth avenue and martin luther king uh street and but at the time um i think there was um some question of whether or not you know she had driven the car there maybe the car had gotten stolen and dropped off there um but the car was not opened and um and that's unfortunate because it was a call in from the neighbors um alerting the police to a smell that eventually got that car opened on the 11th and her body was located in the trunk of the car and i think we did discuss um briefly between the two of us that some of the reason that it may not have been opened right away was because of the jurisdictions, right? you know, because the car was in Texas city, but the, the initial filing of the missing person was in Dickinson. So that may have been some of it. Right. And I think, you know, this is one of those hard cases, you know, where you have her living kind of on the Texas city Dickinson line. Um, she's reported missing in Dickinson. There may be an attempt to report her in Texas city. Texas city is saying, you know, it's a, at the time that it was a, a Dickinson case. And, and so, you know, that, that does seem to go back and forth on, on whose case or who's in charge of it. Um, so time, time seems to be an enemy there. Um, and then, you know, again, this is one of those where little information is known. What we're putting it out there for the public is that, this is an active open investigation where police are seeking information currently to try to find out and put some missing pieces together. So please let's not let this case go cold. Like so many of the other cases that we talked about on this podcast, if you have information, if you know her, if you were in that area and I, we're going to talk about two different areas. So definitely the area in Texas city, which is, right downtown off of uh, Martin Luther King and Fourth Avenue, where there is a church, Methodist Church is sitting on the corner. There is a large park and community center sitting on the next corner. Um, there are a lot of houses. This is right in the middle of a neighborhood. A lot of people wandering in and out, a couple apartment complexes in that area. If you saw something in that area, if you're suspicious of something in that area, please pick up the phone and call the Texas City Police. Um, and then we're also looking at the area referred to as Lago Mar, which is in an area on the line between Dickinson and Texas City, 
right off of 45 and then the main route into Texas City, which is the Emmett Lorry Expressway. So you also have 45 headed into Lamarck. You have a lot of traffic in that area. If you saw something, you know, if you know something, if you heard from her, if you're friends with her, if you know anything that she was experiencing going on, it's really very important. This woman had four kids. Right. And I think, you know, one thing that we did notice um, when we drove by where they found the car mm-hmm. was there's definitely enough people out on the street. Right. You know, um, and it would have been a well-lit area if it happened at night. Right. So, you know, those were two takeaways that we actually did, uh, you know, come across as, as we yeah. were trying to do. Yeah. There are lights at the church that would have been lit at night. And there are a ton of lights in the uh, community center in the park that's mm-hmm. there too. Um, so our guess is that somebody dropped off that car there trying to get it a distance from wherever something has actually happened to uh, Angela. And so just kind of left it there. But when you think about that, dropping off that car in that location. So unless you have a connection to have the ability down there, like you live down there or you know, somebody who lives down there, um, how are you getting back up to where you live? Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, there, it's not an area where you could catch a bus. Right. Um, so there's not public transportation down in that area where you could just catch a bus and be gone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even though we're saying it's a large like community center and a church, just keep in mind, this is tucked in the middle of neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, it is smack dab in the middle of the neighborhoods on that side. So so somebody had to walk away from that car. Mm-hmm. They either had to walk away from that car or they had to get picked up. Mm-hmm. And it's basically in somebody's front yard on the street. Yeah. I mean, it's not like in a parking lot, which surprisingly enough, there's a small one right across. Yeah. You know, it's literally dropped off right in front of somebody's house. So that was a little shocking to us. Especially since as we drove around the corner there, there is an abandoned car that's like right around the corner on that Methodist Mm -hmm. church side. There's a vacant field there, you know, that, um, and then the community center parking lot is relatively large too. So to drop it off right there on the street, you know, um, it's again, if you saw something, if you were kind of out that night or out in the neighborhood in the couple of days, I think one of, you know, one of the things that we do know is that car was located at that location on the 6th. Mm-hmm. So we do know that she goes missing on the 5th. The car is located at that location on the 6th and stayed there at that location until her body was discovered on the 11th. Right. They knew where it was for five days yeah. upon discovering her in it, which is always heartbreaking it is um a lot of time had gone by to let the perpetrator get away or different things like that so that's unfortunate um i guess while we're on that note we we can give out the uh tip lines um so texas city appears to have the case at this time um they do say to reach out to the criminal investigations division the phone number for that is 409-643-5720 and as always, you can call Crime Stoppers, and the phone number for them is 409-945-TIPS. Okay, and there is a $5,000 reward in this case for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of anybody in this case. So, um, but with that, I think what we'll do is get started with our next case. Okay, so the next case we're going to talk about today um, brings us a little bit off the Texas killing fields. And the reason that we debated back and forth, you know, does this case case fit the location? Does it not fit the location? Um, It really, it doesn't fit the Texas killing fields location that we've talked about before, but they're mentioned so many times in articles about the Texas killing fields that the decision was um, to go ahead and, um, talk about them today and then the other thing about them too that was just really um is heartbreaking is this again is one of those cases where there's just so little information where you just feel like it was it's such a tragedy to have them almost treated like it it wasn't significant Mm -hmm. you know And, and what's so weird about that to me is 
it's a pair. They're a pair. So there's yeah. two families involved. Right. Right. And their extended families and, and such for there to be such little coverage and such little information. It, it, it is heartbreaking and yeah. it's almost um, unbelievable. So who we're talking about today is Lynette Bibbs and Tamara Fisher. These are two girls, teenage girls, 14 and 15 years old from LaPorte, Texas. They are um, African-American young ladies who decided that they were going to. Okay. So runaway to me is, is very kind of, is hard because I think, you know, they're doing something that's, that's kind of in that normal realm of teenage things that, that goes on. I'm not encouraging anybody to do it, but for most of us, sometimes we lie to our parents about where we're going to be. And with these two, it seems like what happened is they told one set of parents that they're going to Lynette's or, um, and then the other set that they're going to Tamara's and, um, and, in all fairness, what they decided to do was that they were going to go to a, um, a club in the Houston area that was for teenagers. They were traveling with a 22 year old man who later claimed that he, yes, he did have the girls. He had picked them up in Laporte, but that he dropped them off at a hotel nearby the club. And then that was the last that he saw of them. The girls' bodies were found two days later near Cleveland, Texas, which is about 50 miles from where they were last seen. Their bodies were in a wooded area off of Highway 59. Lynette had been shot in the head, and Tamara had tried to run away, and so she had been beaten and shot. The girls were missing on a Thursday, and their bodies were not found until a Saturday afternoon. It was believed that both had been killed earlier in the day. So they were alive for a couple of days before they were actually shot. Police state that it was not believed that the girls had been sexually assaulted. However, Tamara was not wearing any pants. And so here she is trying to run away. And she's nude from the waist down, basically. Or mm -hmm. she's she's in her underwear trying to run away. Um, and then there are little things that come through about Lynette's clothing maybe not possibly, maybe not being put on in the way that she would have. And then, you know, when you say that you believe that they had not been sexually assaulted, I still question that too. Because you're also talking about them being missing and alive for two days. Mm -hmm. What are they doing with them right. for that period of time? The, I mean, uh, what would be the point of keeping them, I guess? I, I don't I don't know. And then um, this 22-year-old man um, does seem to early on be kind of ruled out as a um, suspect in the case. I, I don't don't know why um i've spent some time on the message boards on the web sleuth message boards um there definitely seems to be people who have some more information on him suspect that he's probably a little more involved the only other thing that i actually found on this case was that um police were pretty sure that more than one person was involved in this and what what brought them to believe that? Are we aware of anything in specific? From what I can figure out, it does seem like there are multiple kind of footprints or shoe prints at the location where their bodies are found. Mm. Um, this is also one of those cases that it just, it's like, wow, you know, so their bodies are found within a couple of hours of them being shot and killed. So you, you keep going back to that. What are we testing? What are we looking at? What do we have left? You know, what can be done in this case? And that's, that's the other reason that this one really gets to me is because if we're going to put resources into a case, this would be the case I really feel like there needs to be some resources put into. Let's see, are there clothes, you know, um, still there. Can we do any testing? Is there DNA? What type of, um, evidence was gained from their body? Um, why did the medical examiner make the decision that they hadn't been sexually assaulted? And if he made that decision that he, they hadn't been sexually assaulted, 
did he determine whether or not they had had sex in the days leading up to their death? Because I think that somebody there has to answer for something. Sure. But I mean, you, I mean, you know, your mind wanders into the whole, why would they keep them for two days if they weren't doing something to them? Right. Right. I mean, and if they say they weren't virgins, they may not have necessarily shown any signs of trauma. No. Right. So like, how do they rule that out? I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's like a process, right? You know, but how do you know? So like medically, you can actually tell whether or not somebody has had recent intercourse before their their death, but that doesn't necessarily rule out whether or not they've been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and even even if there are small signs of trauma, that doesn't necessarily say that this person there's not an easy way medically to say this, this trauma or this bruising that we see here is evidence of forced sex Mm -hmm. because, but also at the same time, what we do know is that when somebody is sexually assaulted, there also may not be evidence of trauma either. Right. And in a huge amount of rape cases, there is no evidence of trauma. The body has a way of kind of dealing with those things. And if you all, if you think about some of your responses when being in a traumatic situation, you may not have that um, trauma that you're, you're thinking of as, as a rape, but that doesn't mean a rape didn't happen. Right. And so anytime I see this where it says there's no evidence of sexual assault, I just question, is there no evidence of trauma? Is there possibly evidence of sex, which could be assault? Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I don't, I don't think it's a good way to go to say, Oh, there's no evidence of sexual assault. And then later come back and say, well, but she did have sex right before she died. Right. Cause how do you know she's, these individuals are not alive to tell you what happened to them. The other thing is you may say there's no evidence of sexual assault, but there may be, it may be that that's was the intent, but when the girls started to fight back, then the murder happens and you don't have a sexual assault. I mean, they could have been assaulted to the, days prior not assaulted the couple days they were being held and once they let them go and shoot them right and the body like you said the body could have already started healing from anything like that so Mm -hmm. and 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 there's no way to know because they are the only ones that know right and so you know and 1996 you know there certainly could have been testing a lot of testing but what could be tested today would be huge Mm -hmm. so it Mm -hmm. goes back to that question what do we have you know and can it be retested and can it be tested yes Mm -hmm. so um and then can this case be looked at in a different light too because i mean no matter what you what happened here you have two girls 14 and 15 years old who were shot and killed 50 miles away from where they last were seen. So, um, they didn't walk there, right? You know, they didn't walk there. So, um, and all the evidence doesn't point to them shooting themselves. Mm -hmm. So, um, the only sad other note that I do want to talk about in this case is that this was not the first family tragedy or family homicide that happened here. Lynette's mother, Viralina Bibbs, was also a homicide victim. She was killed. Her throat was slashed and her body was tossed in a field in Laporte. She laid undiscovered in that field for three weeks. She was 24 years old and the mother of three children. And her case remains unsolved today, too. So was this before Lynette went missing or did that happen after? Uh, it was before Lynette was a, a young infant at the time. Okay. You know? So, um, and they never found out what happened to her moms. No. Uh-huh. And, and they, there's no reason to believe that that's tied to this case at all. It's just, 
it's another family tragedy. It's almost like that circle, yeah. you know, of violence and everything. It's just that circle. Um, and you is... can imagine how you have her case unsolved, then her daughter's case being unsolved, you know, and then really barely any information on either two cases, you know, how that must be to the family. Of... Well, I imagine Lynette growing up knowing that about her mom too. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we were at CrimeCon, we did hear daughters of mother, like, where that happened to their mothers. And, I mean, they they live with it their whole lives, right. and they never get over it. No. I mean, there's no closure. And now, unfortunately, there's no closure for Lynette either. It's sad. So. So, Lynette and Tamara um, went missing on February 1st, 1996. And then, like we talked about, they were discovered, you know, the several days later, um, later in the afternoon. And sadly, that's really all the information that I have. There's a, there's a little bit more information out there, but that information that I found kind of deals with some names and stuff like that, that um, I'm not really comfortable using names of, of people who are not necessarily considered suspects by the police, so... The next case we're going to cover is the case of Crystal Jean Baker. This is another Texas City case. So on March 5th, 1996, Crystal was a small 13-year-old girl weighing 104 pounds, 5 foot 4 inches tall with shoulder-length blonde hair. She was a Lamarck Middle School student. So it seems like, from what I can gather, she was a Lamarck Middle School student, but her uh, grandmother was living in Texas City um, due to some things that, you know, um, wanting her maybe some bullying or some different things back and forth. Um, she seemed to uh, be moved into the uh, Texas City School District, so was living with her grandmother at the time or she was staying with her grandmother at the time. But anyway, um, I do believe there was just, I think she was kind of back and forth, but I right. think she spent the majority of her time with her grandma. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of normal mm -hmm. with blended families. Um, and especially, you know, Lamarck and, and Texas City are like, sometimes you can't even tell which one you're in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but it, but on the day, on March 5th, she's at her grandmother's house. She gets in an argument with her grandmother because she wants to be taken to her friend's house who lives in Bayou Vista, which is outside of the Lamarck area. Um, on um, Bayou Vista is one of those um, towns that's built kind of on the bayou um, so that they have the boat docks that are right there and you can get on the boat and then go out into the bay. Um, so they're built on these little like canal type things mm -hmm. um, where um, so she had um, stayed at the friend's house um, before, had left some things at her friend's house, wanted to go back there and get them um, because she wanted to wear them that day. So about 1.30 in the afternoon, she gets mad at her grandmother, you know, because her grandmother's like, I'm not going to take you right now. I have things to do. And Crystal, being a typical 13-year-old girl. I think she was at work. Wasn't she at work? The, the mom was at work, oh, okay. yeah. I thought her grandma was too. So, but she's being a typical 13-year-old, you know, that <laughs> I want what I want right now. You know how that stop, is, right? Stop my feet. <laughs> oh, you're so unfair. And okay. so... About 1.30 in the afternoon, she storms off. Um, she goes to a nearby service station. She uses the phone at the service station to call her mom. The attendant at the store says she was upset while talking to her mom on the phone. Um, she wanted a ride. She apparently had left something. Her mom could not leave work right then. You know, her mom was like, I cannot leave work right now and deal with this. This is not an emergency situation. Her mom instructs her to go back to her grandmother's house um, and that they will go to the friend's house after her mom gets off work. Crystal agreed to go back to her grandmother's house. 
Uh, she left the store and the attendant at the shop said he saw her walking up Texas Avenue toward Lamarck. She never returned to her grandmother's house. Her mother got off of work, came home. Um, and at that point in time, the grandmother and the mother are figuring that maybe Crystal found some way to get to the grandmother's house. Maybe because her father was involved too. There was probably a conversation back and forth. Maybe he picked her up and didn't let them know or, or something. But so, so they call the friend um, to ask if Crystal has arrived and she has not arrived. The friend hasn't seen her, hadn't been in contact with her. So they contact the uh, police at that point in time, the police are adamant that she's a runaway. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, when you look at the conversations back and forth between, you know, Crystal and her grandma and her mom, you know, I can see where police may have thought she's trying to get to her friends or maybe she's on her way. You know, I can maybe see where they might have been. Like she'll just show up. Exactly. You know, um, I mean, this is one of the few cases that I will say that in, but this one you could maybe see where they might be like that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in in these cases, you always hope, you sure. know, because again, Crystal's behavior is no different than any other teenage behavior. And so I'm sure there have been hundreds of thousands of teenagers that have gone, called their mom, stormed off, and everything has worked out okay. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been back later. Um, so Crystal does, um, resemble Marilyn Monroe quite a bit. And that is because Marilyn Monroe was a relative of hers on her father's side. So it's just kind of a a neat, an interesting fact that she was actually related to, um, her. So her parents and her grandmother, spend weeks trying to figure out what happened to her and um, getting relatively little response about, you know, trying to get some help. Um, And then they get a a call that um, brings them down to the police station. Um, The police, um, want them to uh, look at some pictures and um, what had happened was they had found a girl who had been brutally raped and strangled and then tossed out of a vehicle in Chambers County near the Trinity Bridge on Interstate 10. She was found at 5 p.m. within hours of being killed the same day that she was reported missing. But Chambers County in Texas City did not make this connection because Texas city was looking for a runaway and not a kidnapped victim. So it was two weeks before she would be identified. Um, and so when you're talking about where she's found and, um, and where she went missing, uh, this is about 30 to 35 minute car ride. Uh, nothing by no means anywhere close to what she could have walked. Sure. And especially if it's within hours of, you know, yeah, being killed. Uh, my other thing is they're just, how do they, like, why does it, the police believe that she was tossed out of a car? Um, did, you, did you run across, like, what would make them think that? So I think just the way that the body was, like, disheveled so, maybe yeah and it just um the way that the, the way that she was it's like somebody drove down the road and just kind of shoved her out so she's partially partially on the road and partially kind of on the embankment like they pulled over and just kind of shoved her out of the of the car really no attempt there to hide her at all mm-hmm. um and um and then also because you know no attempt to where it looked like she had been drugged or anything like that to, to that location. So, um, at her autopsy, it was noted that she had a large bruise on the outside of her neck at, um, it was also thought that she had been strangled with ligature. There was bruising laceration in her, uh, in and around her vagina consistent with sexual assault. Her dress 
her underwear and her fingernails were collected and stored. Sadly, Crystal's mother would often comment in interviews about how poorly she and her family were treated by the media. Crystal was portrayed as a runaway who got herself into trouble and was killed not like a child who was kidnapped. There were not large groups searching for her. This happens at the time where there are other children who we've covered, um, Laura K. Smithers, a few others, um, who go missing in the same area where you have those large groups of people who are out looking, um, beating the bushes and really, you know, trying to find her. And so what's very, very sad about this is that there were not those types of searches for Crystal. Right. Had there been that type of, of search or media attention, they would have made this connection a lot earlier because, you know, Chambers County is, is looking to figure out who this girl is. Right. Um, and they, you know, they discover her, they've got her clothing, they've got her description, they've got everything. So they're trying to figure out who this girl is that they have. And, and no, you know, her mother's right. Had there been the presence that you saw in the, in so many of these other cases, they would have made that connection so quickly. And unfortunately they don't. Um, This case would re would um, still be unsolved today if it was not for an officer, Sherry Wilcox, who took a new look at the case evidence. So one thing that I do want to make clear is this case does then get transferred out of Texas City into Chambers County. Right. So that's who's, who's in charge of this case. So Sherry Wilcox is actually in that Chambers County area. She took, takes a look at the evidence in 2009. The dress was examined for semen stains, and it was identified that there were semen stains on the dress. Um, that was collected and sent for DNA testing. At, the, at that point, the testing actually um, is done in 2009. And it doesn't really match anybody for a couple of months. But in September of 2010, the DNA came back to match a guy named Kevin Edison Smith. Smith's DNA was um, in the system due to an unrelated incident. His DNA was taken in Louisiana when he was pulled over in January of 2010 for swerving between lanes. And he was charged with D with a DUI and that's how his DNA was put into the system. Sometimes the timing of things is almost like somebody is watching out for something because you have these things almost happening simultaneously. But one of the things that I did want to talk about here is how important what, what happened in Louisiana is because this is all about arrestee DNA. Mm -hmm. If we're only taking DNA from people who are convicted of murders or sexual assaults or that type of thing, we're missing these people who managed to stay under the radar. And if we didn't, if this case hadn't been for Louisiana and their arrestee DNA on a felony for a DUI, I know of all things, right? You know, um, <clears throat> this case would still remain un unsolved. So I actually didn't realize that they could take your DNA on something like that. Um, you know, like I, I thought, I mean, I knew they could for arrest, being arrested and, and charged or, or whatnot, but I thought it was other cases like, you know, um, like assault or felony cases, I guess. So, um, I believe as DUI is a felony charge is how they actually, okay. actually got it. Um, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure what bumped it up to, to that. It well, really, if you have so many DUIs though, it, it happens. It can, but it? as far yeah. as I know, he does not have a, an extensive criminal record of DNA, DU, DUIs from what I could have him. Maybe a bunch of other like dry, like uh, driving offenses. It could maybe. be that too. Um, so when you ask that though, it actually depends on the state on, um, on whether or not they can and whether or not they can put that into the system. Some states do not have, um, some states you have to be charged and convicted of a felony in order to get that DNA. Some states, all you have to be is arrested. And so say you're arrested for a uh, felony 
DUI, and then later you plead it down to a misdemeanor or it gets dropped, that DNA in some states still stays in the system. I think there are a few states where that is not happening. And I, honestly, I should have probably looked it up, but I don't know about Texas. Um, so at the time of his arrest, Smith was 45 years old. He was a resident of Texas City and Lamarck. He sometimes Louis, lived in Louisiana, um, but he, he basically, he worked as a welder at the refineries. This would mean that he basically worked at a lot of odd locations. Um, when you're talking about welders or what we've famously referred to as people that had the twit cards, they can travel to lots of different locations and be employed in those locations. So, um, so he's arrested and his family hires, um, famous, uh, lawyer Quinnell X, who was the head of the new black Panthers. Um, he was also, he still is actually a community activist. Um, and, he told Smith, so he went to talk to Smith and he told Smith, if you are innocent, I will stand with you, brother. If you did not do this, I will stand with you. But if you did do this, don't respect my name and your family. So, and then they had a much longer conversation and Quinnell X arranged for Smith to meet with law enforcement and the district attorney. At that meeting, Smith confessed that he had picked up a girl he believed her name was Michelle and she told him she was 18 years old. He paid her for sex. She freaked out on him when he ejaculated on her during oral sex. She began to scream. He begged her to be quiet. She would not stop. And so he strangled her. He was worried that people at a nearby gas station would hear her. And, um, he, strangled her with his hands at first and then he manually strangled her with a strap um that had a buckle on it when he when he recognized that she was not breathing he freaked out he began to drive and he dumped her body under the trinity bridge hmm. when you look at at the confession, obviously there are certain things that stand out. One, um, giving a different name, changing her age, um, never ever admits that they actually had intercourse, only admits that there was um, oral. One of the possibilities of the reason that, that this is done is, is that um, he may have been doing that in order to avoid a capital murder charge. If she lied about her name and age and the sex was consensual, he may have believed that he was only culpable for murder and then he would not be looking at capital murder. When he does go through the trial, this is actually part of his defense that he did not kidnap her or rape her since she lied. According to him, he did not know that she was a child. Um, never mean, never forget the fact that you still killed her. So, I mean, right. You know, I mean, what would difference would that make? I mean, I know it makes a difference with it being capital or not, but I mean, oh my God, um, sometimes the way they think, you know, I also think that there was a lot here with his family, mm -hmm. you know, um, his family and certainly they did not deserve anything that happened as a result of this. Um, but his family was, was well behind him, you know, and then he's basically admitting to this and, you know, breaking their hearts. And I, and maybe it was a little bit to try to try to lessen the blow. When you look at pictures of her though, it's hard to deny that she looks like a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, that, there can be so many reasons there. Um, and maybe it was just easier for him to not think that he would be a child killer or there's the possibility that he didn't want to go to prison being known as a child killer. There's that. Um, so I think there, there are a lot, there's a lot there. He did not plead guilty though. So he did not save the, the, her family or his own family from going through a trial. Um, 
in 2012, he did not testify in his defense. The jury actually only took 30 minutes to convict him of capital murder and he was given life in prison. Um, which is actually unusual to get life in prison in Texas for this type of offense. However, the district attorney did not seek the death penalty in this case. And the reason was they wanted to question him about other murders that they thought he could be connected to. Um, to date, he has not been charged with any murder, nor has the district attorney ever come out and put him a, as a suspect in, in murders. He did later appeal. He stated that um, the jury should have been able to consider the lesser charge of murder, which they were not given that option, um, based on, on the story that he's telling. So he, he did believe that based on that. He also, that the DA removed any potential black jurors um, without cause. The courts did look at that. Um, I would hope that that did not go on. Um, the courts did not actually find that 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 did happen. Um, there was also a few different things that go back and forth with uh, Quinnell X and the confession there too. Quinnell X is hired to represent him um, on good faith and is, yeah. is coming in there basically to, you know, and, and gets a confession. Um, you can look at that in a lot of different ways, you know, um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who believe that he probably should have behaved differently. I do reasonably also look at that. I think that there's more to the fact that um, Smith is not actually on death row. And I really think that has a lot to do with, with Cornell X making sure that that did not actually happen to him. Mm -hmm. um, and it may have been different if if his involvement was not there of, of getting the confession and, and doing that. So so as as much as you look at that as, as a negative, um, I think it's a it's a double edged sword there. You know, it's it's just one of those things. Um, there are questions. Um, are there unsolved murders in the area that are similar to um, crystals that could be con um connected to smith yes yes all you have to do is listen to the the podcast i think there are several different uh victims that are similar are similar yeah. you know of um similar in age similar in looks similar similar in location location yeah mm -hmm. and um he doesn't he could be this could be his only one um he certainly is not sharing any more information. Uh, and why would he, you know, he's looking at a life in prison. So there's not a whole lot for him and, and he would be then putting his family through more tragedy. Um, but his DNA is, is in the system. Um, it's been run against many of these other cases too. So if they had DNA, it would pop. Yeah. It would pop back to him. So, you know, but in so many of these other cases, we don't have DNA. Yeah, and you know, in the, some of these cases, the cold cases might come off these shelves. It is possible that it could pop. You right. Know, so you know, and I think that's why we always think that anything that can be done in that movement to test anything that's possibly out there, because it's not like it's going to last forever either. Time is only hurting any chances that you have of getting anything mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. um, so interesting enough, as we're sitting here doing the podcast, I went ahead and, and looked up um, Texas law with arrest DNA. Okay. Just out of curiosity. And this is very interesting and I did not know this, but <clears throat> so I'm just going to read like this brief description, but it says the law authorizes the collection of DNA samples from individuals charged with 24 different qualifying felonies and compares the offender samples to existing crime scene DNA profiles and CODIS. Right. The law is known as the Crystal Jean Baker Act and it went into effect September 1st of 2019. Oh, okay. So her, so this, so because of her case, then, you know, Change to law was made. Yeah. So, um, 
well, that's great information. I think, you know, that's so important. Um, if that's not happening in your state, I think it should happen. In, in and, and it briefly does say, you know, about half the states do that. Mm -hmm. um, half of them don't. I didn't get into great detail yeah. whether if you plead down or anything like that, but maybe that's something we can bring at another date. Um, and then the only other thing that kind of, you know, is an interesting side note on this case is the officers investigating Crystal's case at one point, pretty much early on before she gets um, sent off to Chambers County, are um, Michael Land and Brian Getchens. Um, in 2011, the film Texas Killing Fields was released. This film is lo loosely base based on investigations that those two um, did in this area, including some pieces from Crystal's case. Even though it's kind of a stretch because her case does uh, end up in, in Chambers County. The film, though, um, is is fiction. <laughs> so yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's important to say that. Because... It's very important to uh, to say that, even though it's loosely based on, on these two detectives. Well, and if and... you do watch it, they kind of blend several of the girls kind of into yeah. one story, and that's not really, we know that's not how it happened, but... But what it would do is bring a national focus uh, to crimes, these types of crimes in the Texas Killing Fields area. And I don't think there's anything that, that we can say that's bad about that. Any focus on these cases is good. Sure, sure. So, um, it's actually funny that this is the first time we've actually brought up the film. It is, yeah, it is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting film. If if you want to take a look at it, um, it's it's worth a look. All right, guys. And I think with this, um, we're going to end today's episode. Just don't forget to keep in mind, if you have any information about Angela, Leanne Mitchell, or any of the other girls that we've covered, please reach out to the respected departments um, and let them know what you know. It's the only way to get some of this stuff solved or back into eyesight of law enforcement. Um, anything for you to add today, Gretch? No, I just, I would second that too, is, you know, if you, if you have any information, um, if you're, you know, we met so many people while we were at uh, CrimeCon. Um, I did put a call out there, you know, for help with the Princess Blue case. If anybody is interested in trying to do more with the ring, you know, I would love to um, pass on some of the information that I have that might help um, get something done out there. I think, you know, it's going to take a ton of legwork. So um, that would be great. So I'll put that out there to our listeners, too, if anybody wants to spend hours and trying to track down owners of a blue class ring that would be fantastic and i think it's important though just so our listeners know like when we are asking for help sometimes it's because we have looked at it so long we can't see outside what we're looking at you know yeah. and so that new you know set of eyes on it it really does make a difference so. well and i think you know one of the things that we kind of talked about in that last episode is you know we you can give law enforcement a hard time sometimes about having tunnel vision about the way that they look at cases and then when it happens to you, when we have kind of tunnel vision about the way that we're looking at something, you know, it's, it's different when somebody then says to us, well, did you think about this? And we're like, Oh, no, mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, um, because I, you think about it in that one way, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you like keep replaying things in your head. And I think you said it best today when you told me it's hard to put it to rest. Like it's hard yeah. to put it aside and, and move on because you just keep thinking you can do this. You know, you can solve yeah. it. You can, you, you're missing something and it could be so simple. So, yeah, I think when I do research, that's always one of the hardest things for me is to, to finally get it to the point where I'm sending you that outline and saying, okay, this is where we're going because then that research stage is done. And I always, in every single one of these cases, think that there's more out there that I could mm -hmm. find and bring forward, you know, that, that might make, you know, give you that little bit of information, you know? Yeah. And I know, you know, in our process to how we kind of go about things. It's like, well, it could be this, or you got to think at it like this, or this, this, and this, even though we know 
law enforcement has these direct pieces uh -huh. of uh, facts. So, yeah. you know, but we're like, but there could be, you know, you just always have to look at it from a different angle and everybody's perspective is going to be different. Like my way of thinking is totally different from your way of thinking in a lot of, a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it work. So, you know, just putting that out there for you. Well, guys. and I think, you know, anytime that we're saying, gosh, there could be evidence in this case, you know, it would be great if evidence could be tested. We do know that, one, there's a possibility that there's nothing there, you know, that it's been lost to time. Or two, there's a possibility, you know, in in one case, and we're not going to mention which one, we know evidence is currently being tested. Right. And so, you know, and those are things that um, you may, we may not be able to like talk about or, or law enforcement not, may not be able to talk about, but, but it's, you know, things are happening that, that you're not knowing as the public. And mm -hmm. so, um, and we constantly have to remind ourselves that anything with law enforcement, anything with the government is slow. Yeah. Unfortunately it is. And even though we want to know like, Oh, we've made that connection. We want to mm -hmm. know it's really, it's going to take time. Yeah. So. And it's expensive. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. Um, I think one of the things that we, um, you know, when we went to CrimeCon, one of the interesting things that comes out of that is just to get DNA testing, done for people to look at it from a genetic genetic genealogy standpoint just to get the testing done not even to get onto the sites or anything like that it's just five thousand mm -hmm. dollars just to get it done and that's if it's like easy like if mm -hmm. if it doesn't need to be um if it doesn't need to be brought out more if it doesn't need to be you know that's just five thousand dollars on top of that that's you know, it's and not thing like I did find out, I mean, not to cut you off, I'm right. sorry, but one thing that just listening to these different families during those seminars is they're paying for that. Right. And most of the time they're paying for that to get a jump start on their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I guess was eye opening. Cause you just think that there's this whole process with the government and things are this way and that should be protocol. It is, but the funding has to still right. be there. So that's an unfortunate thing too. Yeah. And then there's not just like a genetic genealogy website that, you know, law enforcement can use and pour all this information out. And then boom, all of a sudden after like two or three hours, it pops out and here's the suspect. It's, you know, when they were giving us that, the yeah, hours that yeah. it was spending on some of these cases, you're talking about seven, 800 hours on some of these cases, you know, and even more and multiple yeah. people on the same case. Right. And yeah. even more. And then even when they get that information, then they have to send that over to somebody else to be rechecked because they can't just say, okay, this is how I found it. It has to, somebody else has to go through that exact process again mm -hmm. so that they find the exact same finding because you don't want it just to come out wrong. Well, no, because if it's right, you want it to be provable. Yeah. So, um, but again, I think we kind of went off on a little tangent there. Uh, but thank you again for joining us today. And um, as always, connect with us on our email address, which is bodies in bayous at hotmail.com or on Facebook, we're facebook.com slash bodies in the bayous. So please let us know. We're always looking for feedback. Thanks, guys. Thank you.